Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, so glad that you're joining us here this morning. I want to say good morning to all of you watching and listening online uh, this morning. If you're serving and uh, you're watching this later, let's just take a moment to thank everyone who serves our church all the time. So thank you if you're watching this morning and you are serving somewhere today. We want to thank you for that. Well, I just want to give a caveat before I get going. If you have young children in the room today, you probably should remove them because of the content of this message, uh, just because of what I'm about to say. Today, some of you are like, whoa, what's about to happen? It's okay. Uh, Today, we are going to enter into one of the most relevant, most challenging, most freeing, most disturbing, most life-giving passages, actually not only in 1 Corinthians, but actually in the whole New Testament. So here's what I'm asking this morning as a fellow Christian and as a fellow journeyer. I am begging every one of us this morning, whether you're a seeker or a brand new Christian or a hardcore skeptic or a long-term follower of Jesus, I am asking everyone in this church to choose to hear this whole message and not walk out before I'm done. I, I won't judge you if you're going to get kids, so don't worry if you're getting up. Don't worry, I'm not staring at you. I can't see anything anyway. Um, there are points in this message that many of us might not want to hear this morning. Many of us might become angry or even emotionally shut down. But I'm asking you this morning just to hear God's word spoken. Let's not be like our culture. Let's not be like Toronto or North America that reduces all of a conversation down to tweets and sound bites and refuses to hear the whole story. So let us start where we must. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 5, but before we get there, I want to begin somewhere else. If we forget what has already been said and joyfully given and expressed and embraced at the beginning of the book, we will not fully understand and fully embrace the second part of the book. And so I want to start this morning with all of us re-remembering the the, the good news, the great identity-giving, life-transforming truths that we've already heard, that that original church in Corinth heard, and all of us has heard, and if you're a Christian this morning, it's true over us. 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And remember what I said all the way back in week one, to those sanctified. And remember, I said, hold on, everyone stop and see the power of this. To those who have been made holy, sanctified, past tense. In other words, what Jesus did 2,000 years ago made you clean today. See, you're not just set apart today to serve God. Right now, because of Jesus, you are perfect. When God the Father sees you, he sees you through Jesus. I said in week one, Jesus is like the ultimate Brita filter system. He takes all the impurities out and only produces pure water. When God looks at you today, on this moment, you are perfect in the heavenlies. You're holy, you're good with the Father, you're already clean, you're already reconciled, you're already loved, you're already held, you're already owned in, through, and by Jesus Christ. Actually, the old King James says this, you already are a saint. Now, since you've been set apart for God and from God, and since you have God's approval and worth and affirmation and love, here's what we as Christians know. The two deepest longings in the human heart are fulfilled in Jesus. We are known and never let go. In other words, we are never fully lonely, and we're known, and we are loved. Every human being wants to be known, and every human being wants to be loved, and the great news of Christianity is God knows us, and God loves us. Amen, everyone? So we've got that. 
This is what you are. This is what you've experienced. This is God's ongoing, overflowing river in you, over you, and through you. God's gift is Jesus. And notice, we have peace with God and we have grace with God, which is impossible to earn or achieve. It's not even deserved, but because God is love, he does this for us. And you remember what Paul says, though, right in that second verse of 1 Corinthians, to you who already are holy, we who are saints, we that are positionally made right with God, we still need to work out that holiness upstairs, downstairs, in work, in marriage, in relationships with money, sex, faith, family, friends, and enemies. To those who are holy, now live a holy life. The evidence of things being right upstairs is ever-growing life change under God's spirit and power downstairs. That means becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. So now we have been reminded of the love of God and the calling of God and the sacrifice of Jesus and being known by God and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God that shines so bright. Now we enter back downstairs in the problem. Now, as we've been walking through this series together, we've seen some very specific things. Paul, between chapter 1 and chapter 4, has now made the gospel clear. The battle of leadership has been redirected. The infighting in the church has been confronted. The crisis over who leads has been dealt with. And now it's like Paul takes a deep breath and goes, Now, I'm not done. I now need to turn to another huge issue that's been plaguing the church. Paul is like, I wasn't just told about your infighting and trying to turn leaders on each other, there is sexual stuff going on in the church that is actually not allowed among God's people. And actually, it's not just happening in secret. It's right at the center of your community. So Paul starts like this in 1 Corinthians 5.1. It is actually reported to me that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, that phrase or that word sexual immorality, I've taught this before. Let me just give you the basic definition of what that means in the Bible dictionary. The word is porneia. It's where we get our word pornography from. And throughout the whole Bible, in the Hebrew versions of it and the Greek versions in it, there are three meanings that are all interconnected that are used all at once. Porneia, sexual immorality, can mean adultery when you are having an affair romantically or sexually on your spouse that is not lawful. That's adultery. That's porneia. The second one is called betrothal breakdown. In Jewish culture, when you got engaged, in their mind before God, you were already married. And so while you were engaged, if you went and slept with someone else or fooled around with someone else, you actually are committing adultery because you're already married. Remember in the Christmas story we're about to enter into, Joseph heard or thought that Mary had slept with a man because she was pregnant, and so he went to divorce her. How can you divorce someone you're not married to? Because in that culture, when you're engaged, you are married. It is. So in Joseph's mind, Mary had committed what? Pornea, sexual morality. But when you just read the basic definition, the word porneia in the Bible and in the biblical dictionaries is a catch-all phrase that summarizes all the Old Testament forbidden sexual acts into one phrase. And so when you read the word porneia, what it was meant by Paul and all the other uh, writers is incest, same-sex activity, prostitution, molestation, and bestiality. For an Orthodox Jew, when they said porneia, that's what was in their mind. Now, if you read the Bible from beginning to the end, there is a unified biblical worldview when it comes to sex. Sex is good. Sex is from God. God invented sex. Sex is for pleasure. Sex is for procreation. It is love, and it is amazing. But like a mighty river, God as designer and creator has placed river banks, and when the river overflows, it is pornea. 
Any sexual act outside of marriage formed by God in Genesis is called to the Jewish mindset sexual immorality for Moses, for Jesus, for Paul, for Jude, for the author of Hebrews, for Peter. Actually, all the biblical writers have their sexual starting point as Adam and Eve before sin entered into the world. That's God's want, design, gift, and picture. And when you step out of that, whether you're offended at that right now or not, when you step out of that, the scriptures call that porneia. Now, Paul says, I hear that there is porneia among you, but actually he says, there's a specific kind I want to address. There's actually a kind of porneia taking place that even pagans are not okay with. They don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Paul says, okay, there's incest taking place in the church and a son is sleeping with his mom. Now, Paul is directly quoting Leviticus 18.7. He says, do not, this is what God says, do not dishonor your dad by having sexual relations with your mom. She's your mom. Don't have relations with her. And do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your dad. Now, the sense here is not a one-time experience or a one-night stand. It's a long-term affair. And most contextually do not think this was his mom, his literal biological mom. Most think it was actually his stepmom. But whether it was his biological mom or his stepmom, as we just read in the scriptures in Leviticus, it is sin, porneia. Now, in those times, it was incredibly common for a younger woman to marry a much older man. So the stepmom would probably be much closer in age to the son. Also, many scholars think that as you look at the context of the letter, there's a good chance that this young man was wealthy, had right connections, had influence in the church, and though he was sleeping with his dad's trophy wife, either the the church was afraid to confront it because he was so powerful, and or they just didn't think it was that bad anyway. Now, notice and stop and see this this morning. It's something incredibly important. This person, this young man, is not struggling They are doing this. They don't care. It's like the couple saying, well, the church is okay with it, and I'm okay with it, and you should be okay with it, and don't you dare get in my business. And by the way, you have no right to judge me. Now, Paul responds to the whole church like this. And you're so proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? Oh yeah, the sexual morality is always big and serious, but actually the greater issue is the church didn't step up and deal with it. Paul says, you're so proud as a church. You're walking around boasting. We have the Holy Spirit and we can heal people in Jesus's name and we have grace and we're so self-sufficient and, and Paul, we're better preachers than you. So grace, grace, and more grace covers it all. And they're actually saying by their lack of action, trespass, it's okay. You have freedom to, you have the right to do what you want, when you want. Sin is wrong, sure, but it's covered by Jesus. In other words, let's twist God's free gift of forgiveness in Jesus to do whatever you want. Since, since we have forgiveness in Jesus, we can do anything we want, even if it's a little weird because we have no more penalty. And Paul says, you're throwing a party? Shouldn't you be mourning and fasting and repentant and broken and filled with grief and sadness? How can you keep walking around being so arrogant with your head held high as a church and this is happening? Well, then Paul does it. Shocking, un-Canadian, un-Western, anti-tolerance. He simply asks, why have you not kicked this person out of the church yet? Hold on, we say, hold on, hold on. That's unloving. Uh, That's so harsh. That's judgmental. That's not grace. Some of you who are sitting here or watching online say, this is why I hate Christians. You're so freaking judgy. You, 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 hold on. 
Paul says, I'm writing this to Christians. Uh, Christians that are in a relationship with God who have said yes to Jesus as Savior, leader, and Lord. And so in other words, here's what Paul is saying. This young man is not only cheating and breaking vows with his father's wife, he's also breaking his baptismal vows with Jesus, which he agreed to. See, Jesus is Savior and Lord, not just Savior. Now his reaction and maybe some of your reactions are also revealing a huge misunderstanding of God. We hear people all the time say in churches, God is love. He is. But what they forget to say is God is holy love. Holiness is not down here and love is up here. God at his epicenter, at his DNA, is love and holiness mixed. And so when we say God is love, somehow in our North American minds we say, so you know, God doesn't really hate. God hates sin. He is holy. That is why we need a savior because we're actually in such trouble. And Paul keeps going and says, look, for my part, even though I'm not physically present with you at church today, I'm with you in spirit. And as one who's uh, present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of Jesus, our Lord Jesus, on the one who has been doing this thing. Now, once again, Paul enforces the idea that we are truly bound together by God through the Holy Spirit as one community. Remember what we learned in 1 Corinthians 3.17, for God's temple is sacred, that means holy, a place that is set apart and should be without sin, and you together are that temple. And remember, we've been finding out the unbelievable implication of this. Remember, Paul is an Orthodox Jew, and there's a good chance while he's writing 1 Corinthians, the temple is still being used in Jerusalem, and they're still sacrificing, and Paul says, you, you. You, we together, us broken, normal, everyday people, we've replaced Moses' tabernacle where Moses used to meet with God face-to-face like a friend. We together have replaced Solomon's temple and Nehemiah and Herod's great temples in Jerusalem. The spirit now doesn't live or connect. The epicenter between heaven and earth is not in a building. It is in us. The spirit of God dwells in us. As we teach here all the time at C4, gathering to worship is a guaranteed place of encounter where two or three Christians gather. Jesus is present. He writes, and we're going to deal with this next week, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you've received from God? You are not your own. You've been bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And that's it. That last statement, command, invitation, expectation leads us again where, we're, where we must go today. If you're a Christian, you don't own yourself. If you're a Christian, you have no rights. Honor God with your body. Worship God with your body. But remember why. Because we love him. Because he's done so much for us. So Paul says this. So your gathering is the temple of God to worship God and you're letting this go on in the middle of the sacred temple. This must stop immediately. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who's doing this. In other words, here's what he's saying. You're a Christian, and you have a holy calling, and we're called to be different because we're saints already, because we're marked by our Savior and Lord already, because we are wholly marked, and we're loved, and we're known by God. So Paul actually stands up, and he says, I am judging that young man's actions. The Bible is clear. God is clear. It is wrong, and it is sin, and I'm calling it out. So when you are assembled, verse 4, and I am with you in spirit, this is amazing, this little part. And when the power of our Lord Jesus is present, when is the Lord Jesus present? When we gather by his spirit. 
hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, some of you are going, oh my goodness, what is happening? Satan, death, judgment, and destruction. Is this literally saying, is Paul actually saying, I want you to take this Christian and literally give him to the person called Satan so Satan can kill him, so to spare him on the day of judgment so he gets saved? No. What is being said here is this. You are to give this young Christian man over to the sphere of Satan's rule. In other words, kick him out of the church and put him back into the world. Put him back into the grand city of Corinth. Force him back to Toronto, the place where there is no guaranteed encounter between him and the spirit and him and Jesus. This is what Paul writes to another church in one of his earliest letters. 2 Thessalonians 3.14, take special note of anyone who does not obey the instruction of this letter, do not associate with them in order that they might feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would as a fellow believer. So here's what Paul is saying. You need to exclude this young man from Christian community, public worship, communion, so he'll go back and live in the world again. And the goal is that actually he will be led back to Jesus because as he lives out there for a while, he will realize that the grace of God and the love of God is better than the stuff he's drinking out there. The goal of this act is actually to see what happened to the prodigal son happen with this young man. What did the prodigal son, after he'd partied and, and spent all his money on sex and, and, and drugs for years and he ran out of money, what did he say when he came to his senses? I have to go back to my dad and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. Now, this is harsh, no doubt about it. It's, it's in your face. It's unflinching. But again, this is leadership. This is not letting things fester or get out of control. What do you hear people say all the time outside of the church why they hate church? He says, what do people, what are our neighbors in front? You're all hypocrites. A lot of us say, yes, we are. That's why we're in church, but different conversation. You're hypocrites because you say you do one thing and then you do the other thing. And Paul says, okay, the gospel matters so much. The witness of the gospel matters so much. Actually, we're going to deal with this. So Paul is saying, do as much as you can to wake up this person out of their spiritual lethargy. It is like they're actually under anesthesia and they need to be woke, shook up, woken up spiritually. Now I want to give you context so you understand the offense of this and how crazy this would be. People didn't walk around 2,000 years ago with their little NIV leather-bound Bibles. They were all scrolls that were read only in public. And so this letter would have been read in public at church. Now, I want you to think about this. The first time that 1 Corinthians is read to the public, all the people that had let this go on are sitting in the church. Can you imagine their reaction? Angry, defensive, but even more serious is this. I can almost guarantee you that the guy and the stepmom were in church that morning too. And this is being publicly read. And it's like Paul says, knowing what's about to happen in the crowd, okay, hold on. Before you walk at a church, before you get angry at me, before you do something, listen, I just want to show you why I'm actually right in this case. And so let me illustrate it this way. And brilliantly what he does for his audience is he uses the Jewish festival of Passover to clear it all up. He says in verse six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Now, by the way, if you're a note taker, that little phrase at the end, highlight it, circle it, don't forget it. 
Now, in the Old Testament, there's all sorts of connections to leaven, and you can read about that. By Jesus' time, leaven was an image for sin. Now, you talk to anyone who bakes here this morning, or any baker, and they will tell you that you add leaven to make bread what? Anyone? Rise. That's right. Without leaven, bread doesn't rise. But once you place the smallest amount of leaven into bread, it will affect and help the bread rise. Now, if you put the wrong amount, it only half rises, and you're not that good of a baker. It's a different conversation. The point is this. Sin is like leaven, and you put the smallest amount in, and it affects the whole loaf of bread. And this is what Paul's saying. This sin has spread insidiously and is affecting the whole church. In other words, sin is on the rise and holiness is deflating. So he says, you have to deal with this so you may be a church like a new unleavened batch as you really are. Why does he say that? Because he's going back to the love of God. He says, I've already told you this. You're already a saint. You already are forgiven. You're, you're already all these, you know the love of God. Why are you going back to the stuff that Jesus has saved you from? And then he says it. What you're really doing is you're forgetting the cost of your salvation. And it seems by your actions, both the young man and that wife, and also the church, it seems that you're okay with dismissing and marginalizing the great work of Jesus on your behalf. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Now, this brings it all home for him. Paul now shows why Jesus' death and resurrection and his saving work and his lordship has to affect our everyday life. He reminds this church, mostly Jewish, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Now, this is connected, of course, to the last plague that happened in Egypt. All the Jewish families were instructed by God to kill a lamb and smear the blood over the doorposts of their homes. And when the angel of death passed over he would look down and know that family was covered by God's grace. And that is why we as Christians claim that Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism. Jesus is the ultimate expression. Jesus is our Passover lamb. By his death on the cross, his blood is put over the doorposts of our lives. And so when God's right wrath passes over us, he looks and says, there is the blood that covers them. And Paul is saying to this church, don't forget how much has been done for us. We were in bondage, but not just like in Egypt. We were in spiritual bondage. We were enslaved to sin. We could not say no to sin. We were all positionally owned by Satan, and we all lived in fear that every human has, that death has the final say, and there's nothing beyond the grave. And he says, Jesus liberated us. Jesus exited us out of that. So why are you going back to Egypt? Why are you going back to the bondage that you've been set free from? Celebrate your freedom in Jesus, not by sinning or ignoring sin or poo-pooing sin, but now choose to live a holy, great, joyful life. He says, therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old bread, old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread with sincerity and truth. Now, once again, Paul stops and he knows exactly what's going to happen in the crowd. He says, oh, oh, don't misunderstand me. Don't misuse what I'm about to say because I know what a group of you want to do now. See, this isn't a call for isolationism. This isn't a call for monasteries. This isn't a call to build a little fortress church among the great darkness of our city. This is not a holy huddle, little subculture where we feel comfortable with our type of people. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. 
As he says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, well, you just have to leave the world. In other words, this is not to be used as, as an excuse not to get to know your neighbor. And by the way, here's his real heart. He's an evangelist. He's saying that Corinth needs Jesus. Oh, and Durham needs Jesus. And the whole GTA needs Jesus. You can't be light if you're not in a place of darkness. You cannot be salt if you are not in a place that is rotting. You only preserve things when you are in them. You only shine when there's darkness around you. No separating, no hiding, no running, no holy huddles. We have no time for this we're against the world stuff. But Paul's point is this. One of the most disturbing things is most Christians are harder on unbelieving people, friends and family members, and we're lax at church, and we think God is okay with that. The Bible's call is actually the reverse. We are called to be distinctly different than the cities we love and live in. We are called to be like heaven on earth. We are called to be members of the kingdom of God. Remember this whole theme this year is pilgrims and pioneers. And what is some of the language that we've invoked to help capture our unique calling? Remember, we are pilgrims on a journey. We will not settle for what is just common or good. Our standard as a Christian is righteousness. It's love. It's purity. Oh, notice it's holiness It's consecration, and here's the big one, and obedience. Paul keeps going, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a Christian, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. By the way, no one get up and leave yet. Paul says if you claim to be a Christian, genuinely a Christian, and yet you keep celebrating or you keep going in an unrepented fashion in any of these categories, we need to have a chat. In other words, if your brother or sister in Jesus, a follower of Christ, keeps involved in sexual things God has said no to under the category of porneia, in any of those forms, you need to have a chat. But notice it's not just reduced to sex. Paul puts money in the table as quick as he does sex. And by the way, don't misunderstand this. None of these things are distinctly wrong. Sex isn't wrong. Money isn't wrong. It's about how we use them. Remember what Jesus taught in Luke twelve fifteen. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of, uh, of possessions. It is foolish to rely on, put our hope in, and trust in things that disappear. As Job rightly wrote, naked I come from my mom's room, and naked I'm going to depart. In other words, there's no U-Hauls to anywhere. Poor, rich, middle class, upper middle class, lower class, blue collar, white collar, any of us in this room, we have all wanted, obsessed, or even invested time or money in buying things that we thought would bring us security and love and satisfaction. And Jesus says, you know that's not true. Those things in the end go away. Paul writing later would write this in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is not the root of all evil, all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the face and pierced themselves with many griefs. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. 
Put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. By the way, this is critical. It's not wrong even to be rich. It's not even wrong to enjoy things. But we don't put our hope, nor do we do illegal things to get stuff that is not our own. He says, if you're sexually involved in something, you're not repenting, we're going to talk. If you are greedy, we're going to talk. And by the way, if you're involved in idolatry, if you are worshiping another God at the same time you are worshiping the God of Scripture or you elevate anything in front of him and you're unrepentant, it's the same conversation. And then Paul, notice, moves from sexual sin and religious sin to personal sin. He says, and let's talk about slander. If you are defaming someone's character... If you're telling lies or spreading lies or you're sullying someone's reputation, if you are mocking God's leaders and you're unrepentant, we're going to talk about this too. He says, by the way, if you're involved in getting drunk all the time or high, we're going to talk. Now, remember the context. Corinth was known as a wine culture where every time you actually were involved in something in a public civic, you got drunk. And he says, this, this, this party mentality needs to end. And by the way, if you're a swindler, you come to church and you give and you smile and sing songs, but if you are lying or by force you are stealing someone's reputation or assets and you are unrepentant, it's the same thing. Now, every one of us sitting here today, including myself, has a past. And every one of us sitting here today or standing here today has lots of present stuff going on. This verse is not saying if we struggle or we desire or we've done these acts, that's it, we're out. Many of us as Christians struggle and wander, but we've met the mercy of God. And we know that though we are struggling, here's the difference, we will not build our identity any longer in the list above. We will not celebrate, relish, or affirm what God has saved us from. But if you're here this morning or you're watching online, don't close your laptop, please. And you believe in your heart as a Christian and you teach actually, I can do these things. Paul says, be warned. Or if you know they're absolutely wrong, but you just don't want to repent of it, be warned. Now, Paul says to other Christians, you cannot associate, you cannot even eat with these Christians. Now, we got to work this out. Some of you are going, Paul, are you serious? You mean like I can never have a coffee with the person who I'm trying to win back? Like I, if I walk by them in the mall, do I have to like shun them and pretend they're not even there? Like if I go to Starbucks, I have to ignore them and just have my latte? Can I not take them out to Jack Astor's? No, no, no. understand that phrase, do not eat with them is key. This is connected to worship. They are called to be excluded from church community as it gathers for worship, for instruction, for communion. Do not eat with these people is a direct reference to communion, the Lord's table. Communion was not done in church facilities like this with little wafers and little cups or large chalices. In the original church, it was just done at mealtimes in community. But here's what Paul is saying, because it's not just about communion. He is saying that someone who is a Christian, who is a brother and sister, who is unrepentant, should be forbidden from coming to church, taking communion, going to connect group, any guaranteed place of meeting between God and his people, they are forbidden. Now, any contact that you do have personally with them must communicate this. We love you. Actually, we're desperate to have you back in community. I cannot condone what you're doing, and we cannot accept you back until you genuinely repent. And I want to remind everyone, as I'm saying these very un-Canadian words, and some of you are now squirming, and if there was hymnals, maybe someone had already thrown one at my head. Here's what Paul is saying. This is to Christians, not seekers and not skeptics. 
Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those who are outside of the church? What business is it of mine? Are you not called to judge those inside? When's the last time you heard that preached? God will judge those outside, but you as the church, you expel the wicked person from among you. Now this exposes the great soft underbelly of the church in the West and how Corinth and actually how Toronto and other values are stronger than God's work, God's will, and God's word. Jonathan Lehman got it right when he said, for the average person in Western culture today, every attachment is negotiable. We're all free agents in our mind, and every relationship and life station is just a contract that can be renegotiated or canceled, whether we're dealing with the prince or the parents or the spouse or the salesman or the boss or the ballot box, the courtroom judge, or, of course, the local church. I'm principally obligated to myself, we are taught. I'm going to maximize my life, my liberty, my pursuit of happiness, and I have the power to veto everything and anything. I can vote it up or I can vote it down because that's my right as a human. Now that is the philosophy of Corinth and that is the philosophy of Toronto but that is not the core values of a Christian. We actually don't retain the power to veto everything because we are saints, because we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we've chosen to be pilgrims and pioneers. We love Toronto and we love Durham and we love our country and we love our family and our friends, but our loyalty and our heart and our everything is for Jesus and his eternal kingdom that is yet to come. And so actually we don't have the right to veto everything because we've decided Jesus is Lord. So the question we need to ask this morning is this. All of us sitting here at Ajax, all of you up in Port Perry this morning, everyone watching online later, what do we do with this passage Some of us who have grown up in church have never heard this preached. Others of us have come from churches where this passage has been incredibly abused. And others of us just are angry because we can't believe it's in there. So what do we do? Well, here's the first thing. I want to remind everyone this morning that this is written to a Christian community. This is not vindictiveness. This is not hyper-judgmentalism. This is about living a holy life marked by love for Jesus and marked by the holiness he himself modeled. Remember the words of Jesus himself in John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Love is connected to action, not just feelings. So this is written to us. And this is written to every local church on earth. Here's the second thing. When passages like this are read and expounded on, we all have a great moment to reaffirm our wedding vows. Every time I do a wedding, I'm struck when I'm saying almost the exact same things every time because every couple needs to hear the same things, that I find myself evaluating my own marriage in that moment. And I find myself actually re-saying the vows in that moment. You can't have it both ways. If we belong to Jesus, we belong to the church. If we belong to the church, we belong to Jesus. He's the head, we're the body. And if you say yes to your baptismal vows and then don't live them out, That's called an affair. Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. Now, some of you have not gotten baptized for this very reason, thinking that you're not under the same vows the rest of you are. Listen, yes, you are. Just because you're not wearing the wedding ring doesn't mean you're not married. Hmm. And here's the point. In our culture today, that is so individually driven 
And there's so many options for church. I know what can happen after this message. Some of you will go, I'm out of here and I'm just going to go to another church down the street because they're never going to teach this stuff. And they don't even think, they think Paul was wrong and I'm more comfortable with that. Or I'm going to go into another church and hide in the pew there or the chair there and they won't know the situation. Well, I just want to say to you, without any anger this morning, everyone, Jesus is there too. Now, why are we having this conversation? No. We love Jesus, right? We love Jesus more than anything else. Remember, he was sacrificed for our sins. We love him so much. Why? Because he's our friend and he's our savior and he's our prayer warrior and he's our high priest. He's our Passover lamb. He's our good shepherd. Actually, he's our spouse. He's our everything. So gratitude and love and joy and hope. In other words, a love that is stronger and a love that is wider and a love that is higher than our sin is what we want. So we choose to say no to things that we love for a greater love. We take up the cross and deny ourselves because we don't want to deny him because he's done so much for us. See, this conversation of rebuke is founded in love. If you really love him, you'll want him. And if you want him, you'll deny yourself. Now, some of you are saying, no, no, I don't buy any of this because Paul is contradicting Jesus. Ah, yes. The most misused, misquoted, misunderstood verse in the Bible that allows everyone to get away with everything while taking God's name in vain. Matthew 7, 1. Jesus said, do not judge or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be the measure, uh, it will be measured to you. Jesus does not mean you can't say that's wrong or stop cheating. When God is clear and the Bible is clear, you have every right to judge an action as wrong. Jesus went to an adulterous woman and said, that is adultery, repent. He went to religious hypocrites all the time and said, stop it. What he's saying is you hyper-religious hypocrites who refuse to look at your own life. You look for criticism for criticism's sake. By the way, he's saying, I'm reminding you that God's word is the standard for faith, life, and practice. And when you judge someone, you're under the same, in other words, you're in the same boat as the person you're going after. And that's Paul's point. Now, some of you are sitting here this morning and you're incredibly uncomfortable because it's you. You are the person who is unrepentant. You are a person who's involved in sexual immorality. You're having an affair right now on your spouse. You're common law with someone and you refuse to get married. You're living with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You're doing something sexual you know the Bible says is wrong. Some of you are greedy here today. It's not that you just like money. You will do anything for money. Some of you are worshiping other gods or involved in spiritual practices. You know the scripture is forbidden. Many people probably here today have been involved in systematic slander. You've blackened someone's reputation. Some of you are still getting high and drunk on Friday nights and think Jesus is just going to look away from it. And some of you have swindled. So here's my, my pastoral moment with you. Don't run. Do not fear. Don't be angry and don't harden your heart. It's not a mistake you're here today. Are you joking me? The reason why you're here today, the reason why you're watching this online and you've been tempted to close the laptop and say off the whole time and you haven't is because God loves you. And God is reaching out to you in this moment. And here's what God wants to say to you. Your sin will have consequences. You might lose your marriage when you come out and say, I've done this. You might actually lose your job maybe because you've lied at work. I have no clue what the consequences will be. But here's what God says to you today. Though there are consequences down here, these things are not strong enough to overcome the grace of God and nothing is beyond redemption. 
God has brought you here today to be restored and to be free. God has brought you here today so you do not have to be forced out of community, so you can be free. And you will experience the love of God and the love of the community you never thought you could. Now, others of you are sitting here today and you're like, oh my goodness, John, I'm not a busybody. I'm not in everyone's business. I'm not creeping everyone out on Facebook, you know, but honestly, I know someone who is literally doing this. What do I do? Okay, well, Jesus made this very clear. In Matthew 18, 15, if a brother or sister sins, you go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. If they will not listen, you take one or two others along, so every matter will be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, you tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen to the church, then you treat them like you would a tax collector or a pagan. Exactly what Paul teaches Jesus taught. First, you go to the person, you meet with them, and the goal and the object is not to set them straight or get things off your chest or let the person know how wrong they are. Your goal is to see them get returned to Jesus with lots of love. If the person fails to respond, you just say, well, I'm going to bring two people back. and We're going to talk about this again. That could be a ministry leader or a pastor who knows the person or a connect group leader or maybe a person that's a spiritual influence in their life. And you repeat the pattern again. And if the person refuses to do that, then you come back formally to the church, to pastors, maybe even elders, and that's when things begin. Now, some of you are sitting here and going, oh, this is a big church. You'd never do that. We do this all the time. Not because we find glee in this. Let me just end what I have actually written here. The goal is never judgmentalism or humiliation. It is to humble and to restore. The goal is never to harm. It is always to help. If we want to be pilgrims and pioneers, if we want to truly be different as Christians, then conversations like this are not only unavoidable, they are necessary. Now, I do not stand up here over all of you as the great preacher. Listen, we together as the church made agreements when we said yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And this is God's word, not John's word. This is God's word, not the elder's word. And this is God speaking to us today. This is a holy moment. And so we're going to respond appropriately. So I'm going to ask, we're going to take communion at all our sites in a minute. And that wasn't even planned, by the way, at least from our side. It was upstairs. We're just going to take a moment to respond in a few different ways. So if you would join me, and we'll do this, all of you in Port Perry, even if you're on a plane somewhere flying, you're on the go train, you're listening to this, you're in your car, maybe you need to pull over. But let's respond genuinely this morning. No hiding. Fear and control and pride can't be stronger than this. So number one, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you've done this for us. You love us. You've called us. We remember your love for us. Every one of us who is a Christian right now, let's make the decision to reaffirm our wedding vows to Jesus. That we affirm that Jesus is Savior and Lord. Can you say amen to that? And we will live for him the rest of our lives. Can you say amen to that? Yeah. Now for some of you here this morning, you are the person who if I was sitting with you, 
you'd be being removed from the church. And this is your moment for repentance. This is not manipulation. This is just, this is your moment. You need to say, Jesus, it's me and I'm so sorry. I'm sorry and confess. Say to him what you've been doing. I have lied. I've been slandering. I have been cheating. I've been having an affair. I've been living with someone. I've said to God, you can deal with that next year. Repent of it. Say, that is me. Don't hold anything back. Repent. Call on the mercy of God before it is too late. Do not harden your heart. To others of you, the Holy Spirit is putting people's faces in your mind of people you need to go speak to to lovingly bring back into community or to warn them about this. And you're getting anxious because you're like, I can't do that. Yes, you can. The Holy Spirit wouldn't be bringing this person to your mind if he didn't think he would be with you to help you. In Port Perry, this is happening even stronger up there right now. So you need to say to the Lord right now, I will go to that person. Help me, Lord. Lord Jesus Christ, we've prayed for years in this church for revival. We've prayed for an unnatural presence of the Holy Spirit. So as we now prepare for communion, a simple prayer, come Holy Spirit, come among us. We're going to take communion to respond. And we know, most of you know, that communion stems from the Passover meal. <laughs> Jesus took a piece of unleavened bread and he ripped it. He said, this is my body broken for you. He took one of the chalices of wine. and He said, this is my blood spilt out for you. A new covenant, a new agreement, a new forgiveness moment. The scriptures are clear, as we've heard today. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are welcome to the table to say yes. If you're a struggling Christian, you're welcome to the table because struggle is a sign of life. That's not rebellion. Come and say yes. Today we're reminded of the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the Passoverness of God, the salvation of God. The Bible is clear. If you are not a Christian, you don't take communion because you've not said yes to Jesus as Savior yet. And the scriptures, as have just been preached, are abundantly clear that if you are in rebellion or you refuse to repent, you do not take this. You may not take this. Paul actually says later in this book, you will drink judgment on yourself. So as we respond in communion, here's how this needs to go for us down here in Ajax. This is going to be a moment of great joy for some of you where you're going to, again, re-understand the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. For others of you, this is going to be an incredibly difficult moment of repentance because you've decided to repent and you're actually calculating the cost of your repentance, but you're going to take communion and say, Lord Jesus, I affirm your saving work and your lordship. And for all of us as we take this, not only do we need to say to Jesus, thank you for your death and resurrection, As I just prayed, every Christian in this place needs to say, Holy Spirit, come. So the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and the purity of God mark this church in a way we have never seen. Can we agree to that? So Lord Jesus, Father and Spirit, 
Come now, meet us. Jesus, you meet us at every table. It's your promise. And so though these are only elements, would you come and have your way? Would you transform us? Would you bring conviction to us? Would you bring life to us? Come Holy Spirit and meet us in this time of communion. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com. Thank you.